This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam, And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a fantastic but very disturbing and sad show today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the catastrophic murderous rampage that occurred in Uvalde, Texas uh, within this last week where 19 children and two adults were murdered by an 18-year-old with an assault rifle. Yet again, another mass murder in the United States. We happen to be the only country in the world where these forms of mass murders occur, where children are slaughtered in their own classrooms with their teachers. So we're going to be talking about the epidemic in this country of gun violence. We're also going to be talking about a And I just shake my head when thinking about this next story that we're going to talk about, Jamal, which is the flag celebration day in the apartheid regime of Israel, where 50 to 60,000 ultra-nationalists, white supremacists, marched uh, in Jerusalem chanting death to Arabs, burned down Arab homes and villages, and basically calling for the ethnic cleansing of indigenous Palestinians. So, We're going to be trying to put that into context of how is it that uh, the so-called strongest, greatest ally of the United States in that part of the world can get away with its uh, so-called citizens calling for the death and murder and ethnic cleansing of the indigenous people of Palestine. So we'll be talking about that. But uh, before we get to those stories, uh, Jamal, we have to talk about hypocrisy. And you did a really great interview with Martin Kurchevsky. He's the founder and director of the European Middle East Project. And he's going to be talking about the double standards in the EU uh, having to do with Palestinian funding, just Palestinian issues in the EU and how it relates to the apartheid regime, uh, the Israeli apartheid regime and the double standard that we talk about here in the United States. But Martin's going to talk about it in the EU context. You're right, Jess. Uh, And um, as probably uh, many people know that the Palestinians, or or in in fact the Palestinian Authority, relies on uh, uh, foreign aid, uh, especially since the United States uh, cut its uh, foreign aid uh, for the past couple of years. I don't know if they have restored it or they restored part part of it today. And uh, one of the main uh, contributors to that foreign aid is the European Union, where basically the EU uh, contributes to the core services and institutions essential to Palestinians uh, in in, uh, approximately $235 uh, million uh, per year. Let's uh, listen and and watch uh, Martin Konechny. The Palestinian Authority relies on yearly funding from the EU for core services and institutions essential to Palestinians. However, the $235 million it was scheduled to receive in spring 2021 has yet to be released. Israeli-aligned EU commissioners insist that funding be conditioned on revised content in Palestinian textbooks. A recent Middle East Monitor article calls this the weaponization of anti-Semitism to blackmail Palestinians. It cites Martin Konechny, who has followed the situation and states that Palestinians continue to be held to a double standard vis-a-vis Israel. He explains why in his past article for the EU Observer, 
textbook hypocrisy, EU's new low point on Palestine. Our guest this week is Martin Konishny, founder and director of the European Middle East Project, an independent nonprofit organization specializing in European and international policies on Israel and Palestine. Welcome to Arab Talk, Martin. Hello, Jamal. Thank you for having me here. Let me start by you having to explain the funding the EU provides the Palestinian Authority. What is its purpose and what is it used for? So, uh, as you mentioned, it's over $200 um, million in euros. I know the count in euros, it's 215 million euros per year at the moment, which is stuck and delayed because of this textbook issue. Uh, and uh, it is uh, um, uh, most of it, about two thirds of it, uh, go directly to the Palestinian Authority. And uh, there it divides into, you know, different things. So part of it goes for for salaries of employees of the Palestinian Authority, by which we do not mean only ministry employees, but mainly teachers and doctors. Uh, Part of it goes to um, vulnerable families. Yeah, so it's actually uh, over 80,000 poor families, mainly in Gaza. Very few people know this, actually, that's, uh, that this is part of the EU funding. Uh, another part of it goes to hospitals in East Jerusalem, Palestinian hospitals there. Uh, and then um, uh, there are quite a few other more specific projects which are outside of the Palestinian Authority, which are also covered, um, um, you know, like infrastructure funding, funding for projects uh, in Gaza or in Area C. Um, so, yeah, this is the whole kind of uh, financial package. And uh, it is something that has been in place for uh, many years, basically since Oslo. It has, you know, changed shape and size over time, but it's not something, it's not an extraordinary funding. It's kind of routine funding whose overall purpose historically was to contribute to the establishment of a Palestinian state. Uh, but yeah, history has turned a bit differently for now. So who, who, who's in charge of uh, approving uh, basically the budget or the funding and, and what are, or briefly, what are the conditions? So it is the European Commission, but the member states are also involved in this process. And that's where we currently have a dispute because the commissioner who is in charge, commissioner in EU jargon, it's like a minister. It's a minister of the EU government, which is called the European Commission. So the commissioner in charge, he really pushed this idea of making the funding conditional on changes in Palestinian textbooks. And uh, to the extent that uh, there was quite a lot of opposition from member states to this, for good reason, I would think, Uh, but uh, basically the commissioner has pushed this idea irrespective of this opposition, uh, which uh, led the EU into this dispute. And as a result, all the money is uh, stuck. Uh, there are otherwise, you know, there haven't been any other political conditions. You know, I, I would argue that maybe the funding should be made more conditional on things such as respect for human rights or, or you know, independence of uh, judiciary or, or conduct of elections or reunification of the West Bank and Gaza. Mm-hmm. But no. Uh, the first the kind of political conditionality that is being proposed 
is on the issue of Palestinian textbooks. There has been some conditionality on kind of technical issues already, such as sound management of the budget, yeah, but nothing really politically sensitive until now. So in in April uh, 2021, Hungarian diplomat Oliver uh, Varheli proposed educational conditions be met for the funding to be released. Uh, how political is this? I mean, I'm 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 just looking at it, and in 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 essence, also uh, to the position of the Hungarian government. I mean, when you give it to individual states, I mean, every commissioner represents an individual state, and and now you have a, uh, a Hungarian government that's uh, very pro-Israel and and I guess far to the right. I mean, does this play in into this approval process? I think absolutely, but uh, just to be technically correct, uh, the commissioner in charge, he's a Hungarian commissioner, but he's not working directly for the Hungarian government. He was appointed like every other commissioner mm-hmm. by the national government, but now he's supposed to work for the uh, EU commission, which is supposed to be above member state interests. In practice, each commissioner to a larger or greater degree follows a national agenda. And I think in his case, it is particularly uh, the case that there's a clear, um, uh, let's say, um, uh, um, uh, correlation between the position of Hungary as a, as a uh, national government, its uh, close alliance with Israel, and uh, his approach uh, in, in the commission. So, so, the, so the, the EU gives billions of dollars to many countries, uh, you know, all the way I mean, in the past to Af- Af- Afghanistan and, and other uh, third world countries. Have you experienced any similar conditions put on on these recipients? No, no. And that's what I'm also being told by EU officials, that this is really unique and that there hasn't been conditionality uh, um, for funding linked to the education sector and in particular to changes in curriculum anywhere else. Now, it's not like the EU is funding the education sector everywhere around the world. Uh, Yeah, the the, the funding that goes to Palestine is actually one of the highest funding per capita. Uh, But you have a lot of funding going to, you know, per capita to to many other places like Kosovo, for example, or Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, there's funding which goes to education sector in different places around the world. There's a lot of funding going to Ukraine, for example. Um, And nowhere is uh, has such a condition been put in put in place. Israel often uh, cites an anti-Semitic content in Palestine textbooks to dissuade countries from giving donations, basically, or contributions to the, to, to the Palestinian Authority. But what about, I mean, Israeli textbooks? Uh, Nurit uh, Peled Ilhanan, uh, she's a well-known Israeli professor at the Hebrew University. She wrote a book, uh, Palestine in Israeli School Books, substantiates in great detail the negative portrayal of Palestinians spanning uh, grade level in Israel's textbooks. This is a well-known, I'm sure you, you're, you're familiar with, the, with her book. I mean, uh, does the EU uh, try to balance this by saying, okay, uh, we're going to put conditions on, on, on your curriculum, but what about your books, meaning Israel? I mean, do they question their, uh, also their curriculum? No, the the short answer is no, not at all. I mean, uh, look, part of the reason is the fact that the EU does not fund the Israeli education sector. Uh, Yeah, So that is uh, the reason given why the focus is only on Palestine. Uh, But 
uh, it is inherently wrong, in my view, to only focus on textbooks uh, on one side of this, this kind of a conflict, in particular, when it's a very asymmetric conflict uh, and we're only focusing on the textbooks of the occupied side, of the occupied people. Obviously, uh, it's not surprising that there will be controversial things in the narrative and in the textbooks of a society which has been under occupation for decades and which has, uh, you know, uh, experienced uh, um, large-scale dispossession. Uh, obviously, there will be also a lot of a lot of bias and controversy in the Israeli textbooks as a society, as a as a state which has been dominating and uh, which has been in conflict and which has been dominating the Palestinians for for many decades. So, uh, you know, the U.S. government funded a study in, in ten years ago which actually looked at both sides. Uh, but the EU, after some consideration, decided to only look at uh, the, the Palestinian side. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, as I said, there, there, there are controversial elements in uh, Palestinian textbooks. Uh, but uh, in this debate, um, uh, the, definitely the Israeli narrative, in my view, hugely distorts and exaggerates the scale and nature of the issue. Um, um, well, we can talk about it in more detail. If, if no, no, I want to actually talk. I want, I want to have you to talk about your article because you wrote at the beginning of this that you explained the hypocrisy of of these conditions on Palestinians. Uh, can you explain? Well, um, I mean, there's in my view there's hypocrisy at a number of levels. One is what we talked about is that this is a one sided focus. Uh, yeah, looking at the Palestinian textbooks. Uh, uh, silence about the Israeli ones as if there couldn't be a similar kind of problem, as if there couldn't be any incitement there. I think the other, uh, maybe even larger hypocrisy is that um, the EU is not really doing anything significant these days to promote uh, a resolu the resolu a resolution of the conflict on the or end of the occupation, end of the violations of human rights and of international law. And instead, in this situation, we are, you know, lecturing and kind of picking on uh, the details, uh, little sentences in in Palestinian textbooks. That I think, and even I think, is an even bigger hypocrisy here. A third hypocrisy I could mention is specifically, uh, you know, when it uh, comes to the role of Hungary, because Hungary itself has introduced under Viktor Orban a very nationalist school curriculum. Uh, in which it actually promotes, as part of compulsory uh, reading of literature, anti-Semitic authors from uh, the uh, Second World War uh, period, uh, and has uh, removed uh, authors like Imre Kertes, uh, who, who you know is a, a Nobel uh, Literature Prize winner for his writing about Holocaust from from the same list. So, uh, and nobody is talking about that. In your opinion, what are the political motivations on the part of Hungary that uh, are, are raising in, in this issue? Right. Um, I think it is. Um, um, I think in the in the current situation, it's not so much a direct alliance with the Israeli government. Uh, there was a much closer alliance uh, under Netanyahu, uh, but with the current government and uh, in Israel and with uh, Foreign Minister Lapid, who wants to take some distance from governments like Hungary and Poland, uh, clearly, you know, Netanyahu was much more uh, eager to kind of show himself in company of the likes of Orban, Bolsonaro, Duterte, etc., etc., Trump, obviously. Um, so now it's a little bit different. And I think uh, the, uh, 
the Hungarian government, and again, you know, the commissioner in Brussels is kind of separate. Uh, you know, there's not a, I'm not saying there's a direct, he's getting instructions from Budapest, but I think he's playing to the same kind of agenda. And uh, I think it's uh, about uh, sort of virtue signaling to the um, whole crowd of organizations, uh, of people, um, congressmen also in the United States who want to uh, portray the Palestinians as, you know, the violent and hateful side and kind of delegitimize the Palestinian cause. And uh, this is a kind of subtle way to play into that whole um, narrative. There was a letter, uh, actually, this uh, this April 2022, from 15 European countries asking, and this is, by the way, a, a year later, asking that uh, the 2021 funds be released, stating that conditioning the funding on, e- on education sector reform did not have uh, broad support among EU countries. So... I mean, if you got 15, 15 countries saying, come on, release the money. I mean, who is really, aside from this one particular commissioner, is uh, holding the money up? Um, look, the, uh, the, the thing is that there are almost no member states who would be advancing this, except from what I've heard, uh, Hungary. <laughs> uh, and wow. uh, you know, there are 15 member states who signed this letter, but I know that um, more, many more actually support um, release of the funds as soon as possible and uh, are not you know, demanding uh, this kind of conditionality. So it is really one commissioner, uh, but uh, okay, he's not tapping into a vacuum because uh, there is, uh, um, first of all, uh, you know, this whole thing is not something he started, he inherited it. Uh, and it started with, um, you know, there are people in the European Parliament who have been pushing this agenda for years. As a result of that pressure, the EU decided about three years ago to organize a study of Palestinian textbooks. And the Hungarian commissioner kind of inherited it and is, you know, using it politically, uh, playing up the issue, uh, making it an, into a big, big priority. Um, I'm, 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 I'm personally like surprised that that uh, one commissioner holds this much power amongst uh, EU member states. I mean, it's no like it checks and balances. It is uh, even if you forget the substance, forget the issue, just from a kind of institutional procedural perspective, this is a really extra- extraordinary and and fascinating situation where you have one commissioner going against the clear majority of member states not disregarding their view and just uh, pushing ahead nevertheless. In your opinion, uh, what will finally resolve this? I mean, is this going to come to a, a basically a dead end or is there a resolution in, in your mind that might work? Um, I think no, nobody knows, but I think it may be um, resolved very soon uh, in the you know, next few weeks, if not already this week, we will see. Um, it is in the hands of the commission uh, and especially the president, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, and um, we will see what happens. Um, they, you know, uh, I, I believe they will um, very soon uh, adopt some kind of a solution that will allow release of the funding. I think the scandal is that it has been allowed to drag this out for so long um, because, you know, people have been expressing concern about this for, for months and months. And uh, there were, at every point of time during this process, it was possible to resolve it quickly. And the 
you know. I mean, I mean, I mean, is there a countermeasure that other commissioners or other member states can put on the table? I mean, we know. Look, uh, within the past year, major human rights organizations have certified Israel as an apartheid state. Uh, There's daily violations of human rights. The recent uh, killing of journalist uh, Shirin Abu Akli. I mean, wouldn't you think like another state or or they just don't have, I guess, the desire or or the courage to say, listen, uh, we're also going to apply some measures against uh, Israel for its violations of human rights? Um, there isn't, uh, I don't see political will among uh, member states to, you know, push forward for some serious measures um, of this kind. So I don't see a way, you know, uh, a realistic prospect for any member state to to take such an action. That is I, that's the state of politics in Europe uh, at this historical moment. It's very, it's very, it's it's very sad because usually these things get resolved by. Uh, putting something to to barter with to say, listen, we're gonna impose these sanctions on you for, for example, violations of human rights or for, you know, constructing additional settlements and um, you know, and then someone will say, let's release the money. But you, you don't believe that there is that political will or courage from any member state to do it. Uh, no, and I also think it it uh, it shouldn't be necessary, and it, this shouldn't be linked to other uh, issues. Uh, and I think the Commission has, again, irrespective of the contents, the substance of this issue, uh, has you know some there are some rules and obligations to respect the view of the member states on this. Martin Konechny, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. That's the voice and the face of Martin Konechny, uh speaking about the utter hypocrisy having to do with uh, how the EU, despite its funding of the Palestinian Authority, continues to support in these really egregious ways the apartheid an apartheid regime, the apartheid regime of Israel, and the and the kind of double standards. I mean, we Jamal, we know about the the kind of disturbing, hypocritical nature of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you know, regarding Palestine, but uh, it seems like strong bedfellows in Europe. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, here is the thing, uh, Jess, uh, in, in, in this context here, what Martin uh, speaks of is uh, putting restrictions on, on this, this funding and conditioning right. the funding and asking Palestinians to basically change their textbooks and curriculum and 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 to please uh, the Israelis. Like, for example, if you talk about the Nakba, maybe that's going to be, uh, you know, a no-starter without holding Israel to the uh, same standards. responsible and, and holding it to the same standards. I mean, there are books written by actually Israeli uh, scholars. One of them is 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 Nuri Pellet. She wrote a whole book and 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 research about how uh, you know Israeli uh, children books basically uh, vilify Palestinians and and write a whole uh, you know different story to kind of. Uh, appease to the um, to the Israeli audience you know and and it has and basically incites violence against Palestinians but the EU 
does not require them to do anything. And then meanwhile, and this is again, it's political and, and, and this is from the whole interview. It's really being held hostage by one commissioner uh, who uh, represents uh, Hungary, uh, which is basically uh, the position of the government is now is very pro-Israel. So it just, just shows right. you the, the politics because it, it well, really does not reflect the whole EU politics. But then you get one person who can just basically hold the whole funding hostage. Well, isn't it ironic that Hungary right now, also within the last uh, week, has continued to receive and coordinate and take uh, oil uh, imports from uh, Russia when the rest of the EU is trying to shut it down. So Hungary is, uh, you know, obviously to the extreme right of the EU in terms of its uh, perspective, not only when it comes to Palestine, but also when it comes to the war in Ukraine. So it's it's interesting that Hungary not only supports an apartheid state, but they're right on course with supporting Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine. You're, you're absolutely right. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting discussion I've had uh, with Martin, and, and we're going to keep an eye on it because as of today, the, these funds have not been, have not been released and uh, Palestinians rely on, on, on these funds. I'm going to move, move on to the next topic, Jess, and this is a topic I was hoping not to discuss, but, uh, you know, and seems we are like sa- we talk about it every few months, Jamal. Every few months, and then we're sadly disappointed. I mean, you know, I mean, the, I'm sure everyone, probably not in the United States alone, but the entire world knows now, know the reality that you have uh, basically 19 school children, elementary, I should say, children. Fourth between, graders. Between the age of eight and 10, slaughtered by an 18-year-old and two, two teachers in an elementary school in Uvalde, uh, Texas, uh, this past uh, Tuesday. And this is not the first time we've discussed this topic. This is not the, the this is not the first time we discussed mass shootings in general. It's not just about schools in the United States. It's also mass murder in movie theaters, mass murder in shopping malls, mass murder in Las Vegas, mass murder in synagogues, mass murder, you know, in, in, in temples and so forth. I mean, Jess, I was like looking at the figures, you know, just like statistically, and it's outstanding. I mean, it it just like blows your mind. I mean, we don't have actually the figures for 2022 added to the statistics or 2021. And, and, you know, so you go back from the year 1998 to the year basically 2020 or end of 2019, and we had over a hundred mass murders in in the United States, compared to eight in France, five in Germany, four in Canada, and three in Finland. And then the number dwindles to one to z- and zero in 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 some countries. So this is this is just this is what we're talking about the average when you compare it. And. Uh, then you look at the numbers. We have four gun homicides per one hundred thousand people in the United States. Four Unbelievable. gun homicides, and then again you compare it to other countries. The second country doesn't even come uh, close. And as you know, most shootings in America never appear in national headlines, except when you have an attack like on a school where 
19 kids get killed, but there are others that happen, you know, four people here, five people there, and, and, and you don't hear about them. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. And I think uh, what makes this particular mass murder, this shooting, uh, this particular incident in Uvalde, Texas, uh, because listen, you're exactly right. There are, there are murders by guns in the United States every day, essentially. But when you try to wrap your mind around the fact that 19 children, innocent children, uh, who are unable to defend themselves, who are, who are subject to uh, not just a murder, but a slaughter uh, by an 18-year-old who within a couple of days of his 18th birthday was able to buy uh, a, you know, an AR-15 automatic uh, rifle. He bought two, actually, as well as you know, access to handguns. And was able to slaughter these these nineteen children, uh, you know, at a time when you know you had the police outside waiting around for ninety minutes while he was slaughtering these children and these two teachers. Uh, there's so much to say about it. This touches all of us, not only you and I, not only people in the United States, in the United States, but as you say, the world, because of the innocence of children who are supposed to feel safe in their schools. And we live in a country, Jamal, where children do not feel safe in their schools. We're the only country in the world where mass murders and children do not feel this unsafe in schools and that people have the opportunity to buy these weapons of destruction, buy these weapons of war, walk into schools, and, and slaughter children. And, uh, you know, what, what really struck me, Jamal, is hearing the really crazy talk by Governor Abbott and the right-wing white supremacists, well, we're going to kind of get to this in a second, who their only thing that they can come up with is this was evil and uh, mental health. These are the two catchwords, you know, mental health and evil. I have a question for Governor Abbott and the NRA. If you think this is just evil, then why does the United States have so much evil? Because this only happens here. So, and mental health, why do we have, if it's mental health only, why do we have so much evil? Why do we have so much mental health problems here in this country? And to somehow say that it's just evil is a way to, you know, uh, deflect discussion from the reality of the situation that we have more guns in this country than we have people. We have uh, 18-year-olds who are unable to vote, who are unable to buy alcohol in some places, but are able to buy a weapon of mass destruction and slaughter children. So my question, you know, back, back to you, Jamal, it's a couple of questions because there's so much to talk about here. Why this country? Why are we the only country in the world where this happens? Because no one wants to touch the issue of gun control. And no one wants to pass laws that forbid and prevent someone like this, this 18-year-old, to go and buy uh, two basically uh, machine guns or, or, or automatic weapons when uh, in some states he cannot even buy cigarettes or buy um, alcohol, as, as you've mentioned. An 18-year-old can vote in this country just to make sure, because right. you've mentioned that, you know. But the... You know, the issue here just is bigger than that. I mean, the issue is we have one of the largest lobby groups in this country, the NRA, uh, which basically 
blackmails, frightens all these politicians or bribes these politicians to keep voting or, or, or standing in the way of pa- passing any regulation to basically prevent, pre- prevent these incidents from happening in, in the future. I mean, this is, to me, this is what's worse, basically. Not just that, there, that we have this high number of crime and, and trying to kind of psychoanalyze why is it happening in this country. It's more like the ease and the avail- availability of, of these weapons. And also the total disregard. Imagine just this mass murder happened on Tuesday. The NRA, the National Rifle Association, did not even postpone its its conference on Friday. They did and not even Texas, want to, they didn't want to, in Texas, in Texas they in didn't Texas. want to even push it a week. They just like were so insisting on holding it few days after, you know, you, people were still mourning. They had all their supporters come and, 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 and brag about their accomplishments and talk about how they keep saying the same thing over and over, that guns don't kill, people kill. They don't talk about all their roles. They're not trying try to be flexible about anything, basically. And and that, I think, to me, is, is worse than anything else, that we're allowing, you know, back groups like the NRA to be really con- control the decision-making for most Americans. And by the way, you've mentioned we have more guns, which is, you're absolutely right, more than 400 million guns in this country than we have people. That's right. However, however if you break the percentage, what's the percentage of people who own these guns in this country? See, It's actually a small number. And most people, and mo- the people who do own the guns own multiple guns. Yeah. That's part of the thing. So the average gun owner is, even though there's more guns than people, the percentage of Americans who have guns actually is not that high, but every gun owner seems to have a very, you know, the average number of guns per gun owner is actually very high in this country. Yeah, so you have actually, I, I looked at figures, it says that uh, these guns are in the hands of less than 10% of the population. Yeah, that sounds so I don't know about how right. Record, but I mean, I mean this, is, this is the fact. And of course, high concentrations in states like Texas and other states versus other... But, but Jamal, I think we have to debunk some of the NRA's misinformation. We have to debunk what Senator Cruz and Governor Abbott have said somehow nothing makes a difference. None of these things make a difference. Yet, if you look at states like California, Connecticut, other states that have instituted not even gun control, but gun safety policies, you see a significant and dramatic decrease in the numbers of these kinds of murderous rampages. So gun safety laws do make a difference. This contrary to what these, um, these really crazy and I misinformed, ill-advised politicians, uh, and and Governor Abbott and Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz are just two among many who who have no backbone and no courage. When you have a 10-year-old who has to put blood on their face to fake being dead so she doesn't get shot, Jamal, this young 10-year-old has more courage in her pinky finger than Cruz and Abbott have had in their entire lives. These guys are cowards because they are they're willing to sacrifice. That's really what this is, Jamal. We're talking about human sacrifice. We're talking about how this country sacrifices its children. These politicians are willing to sacrifice children 
in order to protect their own self-interest. That's Governor Abbott, Senator Cruz, the 49 other senators uh, who refused to take any, and we're not even talking about the Second Amendment, Jamal, let's be clear. We're talking about, we're not talking about repealing the Second Amendment. We're just talking about background checks, red flag laws, you know, having people register their guns, you know, having background, I mean, just like common sense. And, 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 and you, you have a proven precedent that by controlling, you know, who can have access to guns or reducing the number of guns and the reducing the number of semi-automatic weapons and so makes forth. Makes a difference. Makes a major difference. Yeah. And you talk about California, but actually you have also countries like Japan, for example, if you look at right. the Japan because of their gun laws, uh, I think uh, the past five years, they average less than five deaths per year, you know, uh, by guns. If you look, well, at, look at the UK and you look UK, at Australia, Australia. Where, where they've had high numbers and then and then they passed new laws and they've right. had this buyback guns where they've actually had people bring back their guns and destroy them, whatever. Major decrease in, in homicides by our gun, gun homicides in, in that country. So it's not, exactly like, right. it's not like we don't have right. proven facts. We have the facts. We have the facts. And then they are in denial because, again, you know, you look... <laughs> I was like looking. It's actually funny. You know who receives the most money, for example, from the from from the NRA, from NRA? Mitt Romney. You look at him as a kind of like, oh yeah, you know, it's a harmless character, whatever. He receives tons of money. You look at all these, and they're not willing to give up a penny uh, in order to buy, uh, in order to basically uh, uh, put. Uh, some new laws in action uh, to to prevent future mass that's murders. That's right. But that's why I think they're all liars. I think they're hypocrites. Saying that none of these changes make a difference is a lie. The data continue to support that safe gun laws do make a huge difference. Jamal, even if you raise the ability to purchase weapons in this country from 18 to 21. If you look at the the ages of people who commit these mass murders, the overwhelming majority of them are less than 21 years old. So even if you just increase the age where you could legally buy these weapons to 21, you would have you would have uh, significantly decrease the number of these slaughters, these murders, these mass murders, these slaughters of innocence in this country. But no, 18 years old, you can go out 18th birthday like this guy did in Uvalde and buy two automatic weapons and take out these, you know, these these uh, 19, you know, beautiful, beautiful children. I, I, I hate to do this, Jamal, I really do, but I want to, I want to, because it's very graphic what I'm going to talk about right now, but I think our listeners and our viewers need to know this. So not only did he have a uh, automatic weapon, the AR-15, but the but the uh, the bullets that he used were these high caliber, powerful bullets that when they go into flesh, Jamal, they vaporize. They don't just kill. This is not. This is just not. You know, a bullet. You know, you go hunting. You, you may want to, you shoot an animal, the bullet goes through the flesh or whatever, uh, an organ, the, 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 you know, the animal dies, whatever, very quickly. We're talking about weapons, Jamal, and uh, we're talking about bullets, ammunition 
that are so powerful. These are weapons and bullets of war, Jamal, that vaporize the internal organs of these children. I'm, I'm, I apologize to our listeners and viewers for speaking so graphically, but you know, traditionally we don't release the autopsy pictures and reports of these mass murders because it's so graphic, it's so disgusting, it's so painful to look at. I unfortunately have seen some of those autopsy reports and I will tell you that this is something that, you know, you know, I, I wouldn't want to put these pictures into my worst enemy's eyes. They're so they're so painful to look well, at. But well, maybe, maybe yes, we need. Th- th- that's why the parents had to uh, to to conduct a DNA test because some of these children were they couldn't identify them. They couldn't, Jamal, and and the media doesn't want to talk about that. The children's bodies were so so grotesquely malformed and vaporized, as they say, they they had to use DNA. And and I, I asked this country, I asked Governor Abbott, Senator Cruz, and these 50 Republican senators, like, you, you don't have any courage. <clears throat> if this happened to your children, what what would you do? If this happened to Senator Cruz or, Sen- or Governor Abbott's children, would they have the same response? The other thing I think we have to talk about, Jamal, and this is, you know, again, you know, that painful picture of these 19 mostly Mexican-American children, uh, you know, being slaughtered while the Uvalde police force, there's all these pictures of these white dudes standing around outside drinking water, you know, hanging out with their vests while these children are being slaughtered. I mean, my question to you, would this... if this happened, you know, in Northern California with white children, this happened in an affluent area, you know, in other parts of the country, would would we would the police force do the same thing? No, but I'm going to wait to cast judgment on this I'm until un, until the full investigation is out. But it no, is very very troubling that in a small community where where everybody knows everyone, and I've never been to uh, to this part of uh, Texas. But I assume it's very, uh, it's a very small population. And, 15,000, and, and, 15, and, and the police can get to the scene very quickly. It's not like being in a congested Jamal, place. Like they were there L- in less, L- they were there in less than two minutes. Okay. So then that's the big question is why that wait? Why they did not storm? Why Jamal. No lack of preparation? And then, you were talking about Ted Cruz and others. I just remembered something that they said so stupid. They tried to blame it on the doors. Well, they, he entered from the back door. So they tried to, to to shift the attention from basically, you know, to talk about the how did he get his hands on, 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 on these guns to, you know, he entered from the back door. And nobody wants to talk about what you're Don't talking you? about as far as that uh, there wasn't a quicker reaction to but I, protect I, but I'm going to drill... I'm going to drill down on this. The Uvalde uh, uh, Police Department had active shooter drills within the six months prior to this incident. They practiced it. So they were well informed. The standard practice, Jamal, for all active shooter incidents like this is that you go in as quickly as possible and you neutralize, you take out the shooter. That's, That's the standard practice for all law enforcement. These guys, stood out there for over an hour. Jamal, children, 10-year-olds, were dialing 911 while their classmates were being slaughtered, 
begging the police to come in. And they didn't go in for over an hour. So you're a little more careful about uh, reserving judgment. I don't feel that way right now. I am outraged like all of us are that this happened. I'm outraged at these police officers who take an oath to put themselves in danger to save to save others. That's the oath that they take. And they were standing outside drinking water while these children were being slaughtered. There's there's absolutely no excuse for it. The Department of Justice is going to do a critical incident review of what happened. But I'll tell you, Jamal, this we keep talking about this and you have 50 basically white dudes, you know, one African-American senator, a few female senators. But, you know, we're talking about mostly white dudes in the Senate who are willing to sacrifice children in this country to take money from the NRA. And I want to not just say the NRA, Jamal, because, you know, the relationship between the NRA and APAC is very close. Yeah, well, uh, it's not just a relationship, just uh, just the fact that you have two powerful groups uh, like the NRA uh, and, and APAC. Um, basically, if you go to the history, and I, I, I want to talk about what happened also in Jerusalem, so we don't have too much time. But in 2001, there was a shift just when the NRA displaced the American Association of Retired Persons, the AARP. As right. Washington's most powerful lobbying group, this is according right. to Fortune magazine, right. and it was top 25 list. The APAC, which is the American-Israel Public Committee, uh, is ranked four after AR- AARP and uh, the National Federation of Independent Business, and just ahead of the Association of Trial Lawyers. So you'll see where these two groups are placed in that 25, uh, Fortune 25, uh, most powerful uh, lobby groups in Washington, D.C. And, uh, of course, we know APAC is behind making sure that Israel receives uh, about $4 billion in, in U.S. aid every year, and most of that U.S. aid is in weapons. It's it's the same. That's the connection. But that is the connection. You it's know, the weapons and, and the slaughter. And the NRA wants to ensure that every American is armed and that and and that weapon manufacturers keep selling uh, more AR-15s and more uh, bullets and 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 more machine guns and more pistols. It's there is a major connection. They're both connected to basically. To, to the weapon industry, one, of course, you know, somebody might say, well, is it fair to compare the muscle and clout of the NRA and APAC? You know, one, yes. one works uh, to support gun owners uh, resisting gun regulations in the United States. The other basically works on behalf of a foreign country and should be registered as a foreign agent. Uh, well, I see the connection because both of them lead to death and destruction. That's to me, and influence, influencing our politicians in Washington, D.C., to, to take actions on behalf Absolutely. of Americans that Americans reject. Most Ameri- Ameri- If you ask Americans and you ask them, do you want to see children being slaughtered in schools? You know what the answer will be. Do you want to see innocent civilians in other countries, Palestine, uh, or elsewhere be slaughtered by American-made weapons? They'll tell you no. So that's where basically I see the major connection. But Well, 
one last statistic, Jamal, 90% of American citizens, 90%, which means Republicans, Democrats, NRA people, support just the simple thing of everybody needing a background check. And the senators, these uh, uh, NRA senators, these 50 Republicans refuse to even allow this simple thing of allowing background checks when you buy a weapon. It's that's, crazy. That's ninety. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, and and I know, uh, and that's my biggest fear that somewhere down the line we're going to talk about this topic again. I mean, I that's, feel uh, I feel like we are Jamal. I mean, I I feel like we're going to talk about we're going to keep talking about this because these senators have no backbone. Full stop. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco eighty nine point five FM. We have few minutes uh, just to talk about this. Flag, flag day flag march which returned to Jerusalem's Damascus gate and 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 the old city in all its ugliness that we've seen uh, about the every same year. time every, every single year and as if you mentioned early on in the show uh, the marchers uh, these are kahanists um, israeli equivalent to the kkk of this country singing uh, in the old city, death to the Arabs, may your village burn. And they were gloating over the death of Shireen Abu Akleh, which we talked about that last week. I mean, look look at all these things and people seen seen that all over. I mean, I don't have to kind of give all the graphic pictures and videos of them going around antagonizing Palestinians, um, uh, attacking women. There is a, a, a now a famous scene where one of them attacks a, a, a woman in her 60s and uh, sprays her with pepper spray, uh, storming uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque under the protection of the Israeli, uh, basically, occupation. 2,600 of them, by the way, this year. I mean, this is a high, high number that they went in, 2,600 of them to, to Al-Aqsa, Brought and and, the, and if you look at the pictures, a lot of them are young, you know. So this That's is the right. this is the new generation, the next generation. So you cannot say, well, these are you know people who had grudges and 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 fought in this world. These are young. A lot of them. I looked at them. They're all like the uh, like you know parents brought their kids with them, uh, chanting, uh, blocking access to to Palestinian, cursing at Palestinians, and in most cases, uh, the Israeli occupation police. Basically, providing them with protection. A few times they intervened. Last night, I was watching a report by a Palestinian who works for France 24, and she got yeah. hit in the head by a bottle. One of the one of those settlers hit her by a bottle on the head as she was on the air, and they had to stop basically the report. Basically, to to, to she's talking about how she. Uh, a water bottle or some sort of bottle was thrown at her. I mean, uh, and then she so said... So, Jamal, my question for you, let's flip this script. What if in this country you had uh, thousands of people marching uh, in Washington, D.C., saying things like, death to all African-Americans, death to all Asians. We hope your cities, we hope it burns down. What do you think the response would be? I mean, I, I, I mean, part of what I'm saying is ironic because we've had white supremacists 
who do that very same thing in this country, whether it's Chattanooga, whether it's the Confederate, whether it's the Proud Boys, whether it's January 6th, we have this white supremacy problem. We have colonial settlers who are white supremacists who are part of the apartheid regime. In this country, when that happens, people speak up. We can't do this. We can't allow this to happen. This is unacceptable. We have to bring it to justice. Yet, again, our strongest so-called ally is an apartheid regime. What They get the free pass. So you're allowed to do this and get $4 billion a year. You get the free pass. Well, look... uh... You know, if you, it, 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 if you look at actually how this was reported, they talk about clashes. They talk about confrontations. There's no clash. I mean, the headlines, they say, uh, Palestinian, confrontations, Palestinians confrontation, uh, yeah. clashes, as if, you know, uh, you have the just two equal parties who are going there. Well, they don't talk to you, to, to you about that, uh, that Palestinians who carried uh, their Palestinian flag, they were arrested, they were beaten. They were, uh, you know, by right. the, by the Israeli police. So there is, you know, there is one side that is protected, and there is another side that is oppressed. They they don't tell you that. They don't tell you that the Israeli media, some of the Israeli media itself, is very critical uh, and vocal about this. And they don't tell you that a lot of the Israelis themselves now have been reading articles. They admit that their country turned into an apartheid state. Yet you have senators and congressmen and congresswomen who try to pass laws, basically, to uh, attack uh, and, and BDS uh, in, in this country. No, and, that and you vilify. can't criticize apartheid in this yeah. country. You just so, can't. So what I say always, you know, a picture is worth a, a thousand words. You don't have to go far now because you have the Internet. And you see, just like I was spent the past 24 hours looking uh, the pictures coming from there, from different, uh, basically, news networks, in- including uh, Israeli news network. And you can tell who are the, uh, basically, the antagonizers in, in, in this in these pictures. And, um, you know, the uh, Israeli government let uh, the parade to go on and the taunting and the... Uh, but the Israeli government letting it go on, Jamal, is one thing. The one thing that kind of connects this with the NRA is that the U.S. government gives cover to these white supremacist, murderous uh, colonial settlers. That That's the connection in some way, because they get the cover of the United States. If the United States put pressure on any other country saying, hey, you can't do that. If you want to get funding, which they squeeze countries all the time, Jamal, they squeeze people with economic pressure all the time for doing one-tenth of what the apartheid regime does. But the United States and these senators and these Congress people continue to give cover for these grotesque, uh, violent, racist clashes that these kahanas, you know, I know you call them kahanas, Jamal, but I I think it's a lot bigger than just the kahanas. Well, they represent a large group actually of uh, the Israeli population there, even though they try to minimize it. But uh, those are the, 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 the core kind of head but group. But this is Israeli but, society. This but, is Israeli yeah, society. It's a major reflection on this. Isn't it? It is. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episode, and we will speak to you next week. See you next week. Thank you.